Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. everyone it's LaShonda from Labors of Love and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast and I am very excited to have this conversation with my guest today he is a founder an investor and a music lover I have with me today Mr. Andrew Tudor hey Andrew hey LaShonda nice to uh, nice to be here excited to be here I am very excited too so let's jump in I'm going to start with you like I do all my guests and ask what is your labor of love yes um so I'm a financial advisor. Uh, We talked about an investor, just the areas in which I find joy myself, uh, starting things, creating things, um, creating value. And my labor of love is really helping other people to find financial clarity and ultimately financial freedom. Uh, And so the, the labor of that, the listing of that, the charting and graphing and then execution of that is really my labor of love. That's awesome. So we can go so many different directions and I plan to go many of them today. However, let's start with where is this rooted for you? So if you could take Mm. us back to either a pivotal time in life or pivotal moment where you realize, even if you didn't have words for it, that kind of sharpening people through this, this financial stuff towards clarity and freedom was your thing. Where would you take us back to? Um, I would, I would take you back to college. Uh, so I, born and raised in Cincinnati, uh, middle class, both my parents working, uh, my mom's at the post office, my father's a public uh, football and basketball coach and a health and PE teacher. So they do well. Um, and we get into real estate. We, I was born and raised in a four family apartment building that we owned moved to an, an, another one. So we had really made some really good financial decisions. Um, and when I got to college, I'm the youngest of three boys. Paying for that, uh, we had leveraged some of the homes. We had taken out some debt on a couple of the properties to pay for brother one and brother two's uh, education. And by the time it got to me, it was 2007, 2008. And so when the housing market came backwards, so did a lot of the pressures. My parents' marriage fell apart at a right about the same time as well. And so all of that culminated into me walking into the financial aid office, uh, going into my senior year and them telling me that uh, I couldn't get any loans. I didn't have a co-signer and I had to leave school. And so... I packed my bags and I was the man on campus, I thought at the time, right? President of the fraternity, vice president of the Black Student Union, blah, 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 blah. And they kicked me out because I couldn't pay a $6,000 bill. And so that's really where helping people to plan for the future, understanding like how financial missteps can affect you, can affect everyone in your family um, and helping to kind of think through 
doing it well is, is where that comes from. That's, that's a very powerful story. Thank you for sharing for many reasons. Yeah. So in the order that I thought of them, I want to ask a couple of questions. Yeah. As you were growing up, you used a lot of adjectives in your retelling of the story that I'm wondering if you developed those over time or if you knew that as a child. So when you said middle class, when you talked about recognizing uh, real estate investments, good financial um, decisions, is this something that you recognized as a college student kind of looking at your life? Um, or as you were growing up as a child, did you have that awareness? Did your family talk about money or did you just reap the benefits of the decisions and things your parents were doing? Yeah, we really did not talk about money. Um, I, I'll take that back. On the real estate side, we talked about it a lot, right? I knew, I knew when I was seven years old and we owned the building and we had three tenants and we were all cutting the grass and doing all of the maintenance of the building. I knew that their rent paid our mortgage and we lived rent free. My dad would say that a lot. That, you know, that was the hack that we were living rent free. And so I knew that piece of it. Um, and, but, but when it came to other things outside of that, I didn't know. When it comes to being middle-class, I knew we were middle-class because I had friends in Bond Hill, Avondale who thought we were rich. And then and they would come over to our house and we'd have our own rooms and basketball court in the backyard. And they'd be like, man, you're rich. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then my father was a high school football coach in the Wyoming high school school district, which to us, they're rich. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So I, you know, I would understand people saying that I'm rich and I would be like, man, you should see whose house we just went to for the boosters potluck dinner with my dad. They are rich so I knew I was in the middle somewhere um because I'd seen kind of the, the yeah the I appreciate that because I grew up saying I was middle class too but it wasn't the um like I did I appreciate I really appreciate how you arrived at middle I arrived at middle because I was like well we eat <laughs> I know we're not poor right <laughs> I ask for things and I get them mm -hmm. but I also know I'm not rich because my father would uh, VHS record lifestyles of the rich and famous. Mm. And then he would take me on these drives to, so I was born and raised and grew up in Detroit. He would take me on these drives to St. Clair Shores, which was, you know, past downtown Detroit, um, kind of out in where you cross a certain point and things start to look different. The grass literally looks greener. Yeah. And absolutely. it's accompanied by uh, golf courses and, you know, yachts because it's right on the water. And people's big picture windows in their living rooms never seem to have curtains that like didn't allow you to look in. And that's mm -hmm. where you see the baby grand pianos and you would see all this stuff. So, you know, it's not that I necessarily knew these people were within their homes, but we would go on these drives frequently and I would go, well, we're definitely not there, but I had some concept of poor mm -hmm. that I knew we weren't. And so I also arrived at the conclusion and I was, uh, what didn't become aware that I wasn't middle-class. I started to get inklings of it in high school when the latest fashion trends that my friends were wearing in this very small private school, I was not. Mm -hmm. um, or the fact that the high school that I wanted to go to, I really wanted to go to my parents said I couldn't because they couldn't afford it. But yeah. when I got to the university of Michigan and the median 
household income the year I started was $130,000. I had no concept of money at the time, but I knew that wasn't it. (laughs) So I then began to realize that even my perspective of middle wasn't quite middle. Um, So that, that was very, that's very interesting to me as, you know, as children, how you conceptualize that. That's beautiful. Um, And I jumped to the, the economist side of it that talks about how middle class has transformed over the last 30 years that the definition of class and middle class in the 80s and 90s even was measured by net worth. And so you could be low productivity, low income, but middle class because of low debt, owning your house, other things that you own. But now in the 2000s, we've really shifted it to be education level and income level. So we have people who are high class but actually low net worth and vice versa when net worth used to be the whole indicator of where are you based on where your net worth is. Mm-hmm. And I thank you because I, I recognize, um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about me, y'all listeners. I, I won't put y'all out there like that, but we all know that. <laughs> right. And, and I think it's interesting because we operate off of old definitions very often across a lot of different things. So I think mm-hmm. it's so helpful to be able to just talk about how the concepts of things are shifting. Another thing in your story that really stood out to me was um, I thought I was the man on campus Mm -hmm. and you could, you could identify the reasonable things that did that. Like I I remember the president of the fraternity when I was in college, he was kind of the man on campus, Mm -hmm. you know, sang in the choir with the dude, you know, I don't know if he was also the vice president of the black student (laughs) union, you know what I mean? But he had some cross roles and and all of these different things. And and so there is, I think, a level of security that people who become the men and women on campus really believe they have. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm contributing. Correct. I I have a vision for right now and a legacy that I want to leave behind, like on this campus. And in some ways I've defied odds to do it, Mm-hmm. And then a $6,000 bill can, can, can shift that. Can you just talk about that, that time period and the impact that that had on you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We talk about like having clout, having cachet, all of those things. And I did say it from like the student body standpoint, right? Like I had, I had a lot of leadership roles, but um, I also had roles with the administrators, right? So You know, I worked for the summer with our multicultural director to plan events and do the calendar for the year. Um, And so I remember this vividly because this is a big piece of how I feel about the time. On Monday, January something, I led the student march for MLK Day. And on the left side of me was the president of the university. And on the right side of me was the mayor of the city. And we led this march with students and faculty behind us. And at the end of the march, I gave a speech. And then the president gave a speech. And then the mayor gave a speech. And and we left. And that was on Monday because school was canceled for MLK Day. And on Tuesday, I packed my bags. And the entire time, I kept believing, like, I do so much for the university. My brother graduated last year. My father graduated from this university in 79 they're going to find $6,000 for me because it's a $44,000 a year school. 
this is not a big deal. And they kept telling me, hey, we're going to find this money for you. And at the end of the day, it was just about the money. And all of the feel goods and all of the, you know, things that we think can replace money in sometimes, the good storytelling and that, sometimes it can't. And we have to be diligent. So I was depressed for, for a few months. I mean, I got home and immediately got a job. And I worked at a call center at a bank. They hired me that day, which was really cool until, you know, 12 hours answering phones, 93% adherence, clock out and go to the bathroom when they tell you uh, for 10 months was tough. And, um, but I, I learned that lesson the hard way that no matter how good you are, some situations come down to being a financial black and white situation and not to put myself at that mercy again let's roll with it. I, I appreciate that learning. And, you know, there, there are some moments that you go back to, and <laughs> that's a moment, like I that's can imagine that, that is a moment. And, you know, there are numerous moments I go back to, I don't even want to say I go back to, I feel like that come to me when mm -hmm. I need a reminder. And so I, I really appreciate that. So how has that translated for you into this labor of love that what I'm hearing is not only you wanting to make sure that you never find yourself at that mercy again, but that you are very strategic in helping other people not find themselves in similar moments as well. So what does this labor of love for you look like right now? Yeah, it looks like helping people to identify what they need and what they want and figuring out how to provide those things for themselves and for their families with their wholeness intact. So I believe that money is a need. And if someone controls a need of yours, then they control you. If, if, if we're in a drought and water is scarce, whoever has all the water has all the power no matter what you say, right? You have to drink water. We need money and we have people, organizations that control it for us if we're in those systems. So they control us. Um, they tell us where to go, when to go, how to go, right? They, all of our lives, even we go home and on our cell phone, emails we have to return at a certain time, they control us. And so if we can create an environment where we control our money supply needs, that could be business ownership. That could be developing skill sets to be able to barter better and get a better situation in your own employer, other ways of doing it. But we have to figure out a way that we can control our money supply. And then one, show up however we want to show up. That's an entire another piece of this. But being able to be yourself and earn money allows you to be yourself. Um, and once you have that control, I don't think you ever look back. And I think that people who are financially free help other people to be financially free as well. So let's define financial freedom. Yeah, it's a term that I think, I, I mean, I've definitely heard used. I think it's a term other people will also use. And the, the, the reason I'm very excited to be having this conversation today when it originally comes out is because we are days shy of the new year. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And this happens to be the time where people get uber reflective, right? There's there's the flip of that, you know, not even the flip of the calendar now, it's the replacement of that calendar. And people oftentimes get to this point of their year and they go, I want different. I want different for this next calendar year than maybe I had this one. I want to enhance or I want to take away. And some people, I mean, I hear it all the time. I've heard it for a long time, even though I don't have a working definition, I want to move towards financial freedom. So Mm -hmm. how are you defining that when you say it? Yes. I think we have to talk about the steps to financial freedom. Okay. I think step one is really financial security. So security means I have income that meet my needs, right? And I have some sort of a cushion. If something were to go wrong, it won't throw me off. So I'm living below where I need for my income and I might have $1,000, $5,000 for an emergency. That's security, right? And for a lot of folks, that's the next step. Um, And so we work towards security. Then past security, we really get to a place we call financial strategy, where we are trying to figure out, you know, funding retirement accounts. We're trying to figure out investing, saving for college. Some of the other things we want to do, we're putting strategies in in place. And part of those strategies are typically what is financial freedom look like for you? Let's define it. Let's put it. Let's put equations to it. Let's understand what we're going for. And so with that, I'll say financial freedom is when you have enough money or assets that create money that you can live off of without actually working for money. Mm -hmm. So that could be, and what that means for everyone is very, very different. But let's say you and your family identify you need $10,000 a month to live. That is the cost of living comfortably and actually having fun, right? This is not just the bare necessities. So if we need 10 grand, how do we get you 10 grand a month without working again? And so that could be real estate investments. That could be dividend stocks. That could be a certain amount in a stock portfolio that we pull out each month or usually pull out each year to pay for a year at a time. But what that means when you get to financial freedom is that you no longer have to work for money. And so some people call that retirement because that what that used to be called. But if we get there by 48, That does not mean that you stop working necessarily. You could, but it just means that you do it differently. You do it with the freedom of trying things that you can fail in or doing things that might take a long time to build and not create income. But for you, they're worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So I think a direction I want to go in, one, I want to ask this question, which you may or may not have a statistic, but if we operate off of that definition, what percentage of the American population would you say have reached financial freedom? I'd say maybe three to 4%. Okay. So I, I asked that question because I know that, you know, we talk. So I, 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 I know what I feel like when I talk to you sometimes, which is, man, all these people out here living free and I'm up here. I got to, no, nah, I need, I need us to hear that this is three or 4% of the population. And I might be gross. I mean, as you, as I said, it, I started thinking, right. Because even people who have a lot of money, still a lot of times spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so if they stopped earning, they would run out in five to 10 years. Think about the NBA players who are usually broke within three years, right? Mm-hmm. They, they get to a lifestyle level that they can't sustain no matter how much their net worth is today. So I think it's probably less than 1%. Um, 
but we'll, we'll say 2% visa. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. And I, I think I love that there are steps to work towards it, but I could imagine some people hearing that and feel like they don't feel very close to that. And mm-hmm. I, I think that there's not a lot now I'm a, I'm a say this and we ain't got to go down this route, but you know, I also know that we live within a system that doesn't support it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I believe that when people go, man, why can't I do that? Cause this is, listen, how would the, how would the system run if we all achieve financial, right? That's a whole different thing. And mm-hmm. I know that when we start talking money and finances, people can get really down on themselves, mm-hmm. not realizing that if you have not been given the tools, you know, when people come into my space in general, and, and they are very hard on themselves for not being emotionally intelligent, for not knowing how to grieve, for struggling to communicate, for not knowing how to feel their feelings and express them. One of the first things I say is, can you change a transmission? And I have not had a single purse because I, 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 I haven't worked with the primary mechanic, right? <laughs> so, no, they yeah. go, no, I can't change a, a, a transmission. And I go, do you feel shame about that? And they go, well, no. And I say, well, why not? And they, cause nobody taught, cause nobody taught you. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. I don't work with anyone whose first language is German either. So my next question is, well, do you speak German? Mm-hmm. No. Or do you have shame about that? Well, no. Why? Because you weren't exposed to it. So there are so many things that I have had to learn for myself that do I wish I knew? Because let me tell you what was not on those VHSs, these kind of conversations. Absolutely. <laughs> All Absolutely. I saw was people who had a lot, who whose life, the things they had represented that they had a lot, mm-hmm. but it wasn't in these conversations about, well, this is how we did it or any of that. So I just, I'm, I'm saying this because I, I know that shame starts to make its appearance when people are listening and engaging with conversations around money, mm-hmm. around financial security and freedom. And we, we can't have this conversation without saying, in general, the system is not established for it to work this way, but it definitely is not established to work this way. If you got black and brown skin, you know, if you come from marginalized and historically excluded communities and ancestry it definitely is not designed to work this way so I said I'm just gonna say this and we ain't got to go there but I'm lying we gonna go there talk about you know the role of you know you're a black man yes and um I'm a black woman Your wife is a black woman Mm -hmm. and we are, you know, in different avenues coming together to say, we don't just want this for ourselves. We want this for other people. We want generational wealth that's going to pass down to our children and our children's children's children. So can you just talk a little bit about the system in which we're talking about this conversation and the role that race and marginalization has in this conversation? thousand percent. That's a big question. You're right. Um, I want to start by talking about the shame piece. It's it's extremely important um, that folks who come to us or start having this conversation or start reading the books are kinder to themselves. Half of my working job is working with folks and letting them know the track you're on is still a good track. You still have hope. Stop being so hard on yourself. Congratulations on the steps you have made. Shame is really the biggest reason why people don't start. And so be kinder to yourself on this journey. Now let's talk about 
the system that we're fighting against, right? Um, America in its current state is the most capitalist, capitalistic society ever built. That means that everything that you use, everything that you watch, every place that you visit is usually making money, monetizing, selling you something. So we have to acknowledge how good they are. Advertisings are good. They are, by good, I mean, they're leveraging 150 to 300 years of psychology on you on what helps you click and what makes you buy, what makes you buy now. We can spread the terms out. They'll buy things they can't afford if we give them, give it to them in 12 installments, right? So they're good. And um, just like anybody living in this system is up, is, is battling uphill uh, because our economy runs on consumerism. But when we talk about black and brown people, they will never teach it in schools. So we should stop saying, why don't they teach it in schools, right? If, if I have an in, entire group of people that I can control by controlling their money supply, I can have workers to do the work that we need to build our system. So they'll never teach it in school. Um, and for most of American society to this day, there's always some type of a slave class. And that class has to be close to the bottom to accept the conditions of building the overall American wealth. All right, so that's enough of my kind of back system there. Um, but for people who experience shame when talking about money, there's an entire another group of people that I uh, have a lot of issue with who are our financial professionals, who are our financial educators um, that, that shame you. Right. I won't say any names, but we have an entire group of financial professionals that you call in and the way they speak to you and the way they chastise you for not saving enough money, for not having enough money, for having money on credit cards, calling you stupid. Right. So that entire industry of people meant to help you, but choose not to help you until they make you feel so bad about your current situation. Um, we have to stop doing that too. Well, that that's that's part of the strategy. I just want to say, and mm-hmm. that that makes it effective as well. When we let let's think about like I hear heard you say that, and I'm like, ooh, let's think about other industries. Let's mm-hmm. think about the medical industry. Mm-hmm. Similar, people go in, and you get shamed about your weight, about your medical conditions. A lot of which has been passed down epigenetically and generationally but the conversation you're having in the in the the hospital room is well if you just change your diet personal choice personal choice which can I tell you pisses me off so bad that I can just (laughs) oh because what we're not talking about is we're not talking about the trauma Mm -hmm. that that we are carrying in our bodies And, and right now I'm not just talking about black and brown people I'm talking about poor people yeah, I'm talking about poor people. This this exact thing you're talking about, like that slave class, we can call it whatever we want to. We mm-hmm. can change the name, but there, this is part of the strategy yeah. that that breaks a person down emotionally and mentally to the point where they go, "Well, I'll take any help you give me." So anyway, no, no, yeah, uh, it's to, just, to stay there. When we talk about black and brown people, and the narratives of which their financial health, right? The wealth gap, the reason for the wealth gap when it, when it falls on individual choice and that black folks and brown folks don't make good financial decisions is statistically untrue. 
and personally infuriate, right? Um, black folks actually save at a higher rate than their counterparts. Um, the history of the American system in insurance is really flawed. We actually valued people less if they were black. We, we reduced their, their payouts because they were black. Um, Prudential did that in like 1904 or something like that, well-documented. Uh, when we talk about charging them higher interest rates because they're black, giving them uh, not access to good real estate because they're black, access to schools and education and GI bills, like we can go across the system to say, the reason that you are in this situation is because the system decided that because you're black and brown, you have to live in these conditions with these products in these areas. And so now when we come and look at the wealth gap, it's inevitable. And also, even though I'm a big proponent of education and I'm, I'm, we're out talking about it and teaching people and making a community of people who, who build wealth together, it doesn't take up for the fact that this gap will continue to rise because the way math works, compounding interest, a higher net worth will compound at a higher worth. So I think we do need to stop comparing ourselves to white Americans. It's not an apt, you know, a, a person with a 350 year head start playing Monopoly, you're not going to catch them. So let's really focus on ourselves in some ways, but the system is trash. Trash, straight trash, bro. But I appreciate that. And 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 that's not to be um down negative. It it's it's just to talk about the reality of it and comparison. Are. So, you know, I know that there's a quote out there, I think by unknown comparison is the thief of joy. Yes. But I also say comparison is the cousin to depression, anxiety, stress, and, you know, FOMO and all these other things that you know, now I also want to say that as humans, it, it is, it is what we do. When you look at two people and you need to pick out one, you, you notice a difference. And so you go the tall one or the one who's wearing blue. Like we, we are always looking at how can I differentiate between the things that I'm looking at. Yeah. And so that is a human condition, but I love the, the advice that will take work, but I think it should be very intentional for us. It's not about comparing to that. And if you had parents of mine who were doing my father, he was doing the best that he could. Born 1939 in the South, you know, went into the military, significantly undereducated. He pushed education for me and he wanted me to see what was there. So Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, these videos didn't just represent like, oh, this is the life I want. He also took me on these drives to say, you see this, this exists. You don't see it in our neighborhood. So I'm going to take you where you can see it. So right. you can know what is out there so that you can do that. And I, I've learned to come and appreciate that. I also recognize that in order to do that, he had to then disparage what was in our neighborhood to push me towards those things. So I wouldn't get quote unquote comfortable. So, so many of us have so many emotional, psychological and traumatic intakes that we've been absorbing all of our lives that in this conversation it's not as simple as to just be like so just go do it like there's a lot in there y'all and the system has been very intentional 
to make sure we get a whole lot of it. It's it's in the water, it's in the yeah. air. And so that that urging to be more compassionate and graceful with ourselves um, and to genuinely appreciate any, you know, that we're on a journey. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's, it's very helpful. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the role of investing? Because one of the things that you're, you're an investor mm-hmm. and I, I can say again, maybe a term that I didn't hear until much later in life. I did not mm-hmm. grow up hearing the term investor. What, what is that? I, I couldn't have told you what that meant growing up. So what yeah. is the role? What is an investor? And mm-hmm. what is the role of investment in this journey towards financial freedom? Yeah, um, and I didn't grow up feeling like an investor, knowing what investors were until my junior year of college. I took an investment course and it blew my mind. Um, and and shouts out, I don't even know his name, but uh, the the professor who gave us all twenty thousand dollars and uh, in fake money. And uh, the the challenge was through the semester trade and buy stocks. Here's your list that you can trade with. And whoever the top three at the end of the semester get an A on the exam. And I spent so much time, I said a free A, I spent so much time researching stocks, buying, trading, emailing him, asking questions. uh, And I came in second. And so I ended up uh, getting an A on that investment course exam. But an investor is someone who takes money that they've saved and they uh, put it to work, hoping that when they get it back, they would get more back. You can put that anywhere. You can invest it in a company. That's what stock buying typically is. You invest it with a company because you believe that that company will grow and be more profitable and more successful in the future. You can invest that uh, in a building, in real estate, and you buy that building and it generates income for you. And that's the money that you get back. And then eventually you might sell it or, um, you know, or, or keep it long term to get money back. And so there are a lot of ways that you can invest money. The one we don't talk about that's still prevalent, though, we invested in education a lot. We give an institution one hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars over four years. And hopefully the value of that degree, we get back more money than we would have by not spending time there. Um, and that's how we talk about college education too, right? This is an investment. We're going to give somebody a lot of money, the price of a house these days, and we're going to want to get more back for that investment than we gave to it. And so, you know, what are we studying? How long are we going? And where are we doing it? So all of those things are investments as well. The can whole pro- can can but, I can I pause you right there because yeah, this yeah, is yeah. so interesting. Like, um, so when we invest in education. Mm-hmm. Are we investing in what the student learns or mm-hmm. are we investing in the piece of paper that they get when they're done? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in the middle of a book called The Price You Pay for College. And it talks about three things that you buy when you go to college. You can buy when you go to college. You can buy the experience that they have, the friends that they make, the network. You can buy that. You can buy the learnings that they have while they're there, challenging themselves, learning more. You can buy that. Or you can buy the certification that the degree, the piece of paper is. 
people buy different things when they go to college. The question is, what are you buying? Identify it. If you are buying a cert certificate, then that's a math equation, right? Um, but you need to know what mix of those three things are you buying so you can be honest about what you're paying for. So for me, I, you know, my spreadsheet is really good at talking about the cert certification part of it, right? It says the average person coming out of this school makes this, and this is what you're going to pay for it. And if we multiply the difference between what you should make with the degree and without the degree over the next 30 years of your working career, that's a good investment. So, and, and I appreciate it. I just remember when I was graduating. Um, now this turned out to be, well, it didn't turn out to be a full lie, partial lie. Mm. I was told, I remember hearing multiple times, you get this piece of paper from the University of Michigan, you can write your own check. Yeah. Now here's the thing. They, they wasn't talking to me. <laughs> they were saying that in a, you know, in a, in a group, I happened to be in the group they were saying this to. And I think a lot of people did. I, I didn't what I will say is I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how to go and write, you know, and do that. But the name on that degree has, has gotten me to doors that, that another name I know would not have. Mm -hmm. That's a real thing because mm -hmm. I came extremely under muscled and prepared to leverage it. I didn't know how to leverage anything when I graduated college, but had, had I got the savvy, I have now, I, I, I still utilize the name on that degree mm -hmm. to get me to places that it doesn't. And so I'm just saying that to say, like, you, the, I think the things, the three things, I appreciate that, that you buy, <clears throat> you can get those different things in different places. But when people go to Ivy League, yes, they have an experience and yes, they learn stuff. But you come out with that name and, and it sends you to different doors than different ones. And, and I just mm -hmm. think that's important for people to hear. Um, because sometimes when people don't go to that, the big name schools, then it's the, because there are other things that you can get there. But mm -hmm. as I'm looking at athletes coming out, they have athletic ability in the schools they choose. Like it's, I look at the investment side of a lot of things now that I didn't think of. And when mm -hmm. I look at when people, these young student athletes are choosing their school and now they get name and image licensing and all this stuff. I it's, it's about to change the game in a lot of different ways. A thousand percent. I love it. It was the only thing in America that was free. Like nothing in this place has ever been free. And we asked some of the most talented people in the world to play for free. No, I'm sorry, for forty to fifty thousand dollars a year mm -hmm. um, instead of what their market value was, which was seven hundred, eight hundred, two million dollars. Right? Yeah. It was a rigged system, and I'm glad it's going away. Um, but yes, the, all of them are investments. What, what what we don't talk about as consumers is that nothing is free. Come on. Right, and so. If we think someone's helping us, we have to make sure that we uncover whether it's help. The scholarships that people give you are not free, right? They're giving you an attachment to you, hoping that in the future, you go on and do great things and they can say, hey, that person went to our school or that person went to our program. So no one just does things to be nice. And that's such a jaded way to think about it. But in the, if, if it's a for-profit, even nonprofits, let's go be completely honest, it's just not a free ticket most places anywhere. So you have to figure out how are you leveraging 
what you can do for them versus what they are really need from you? And how do you articulate, you know, I know that this is what you're looking for and I'm, I'm the person to help. Yeah, no, that's so good. And um, I, I happened to read a book or at least portion of a book called There's No Such Thing as Free Lunch oh. um, several years ago. And it, it was, it was eye-opening um, because, you know, I grew up absorbing, find all the freebies you can get. Mm-hmm. find all the freebies you can get. And when you realize that none of this stuff is actually free and, and that um, we have more to leverage than we realize as, as people with talents and gifts and skills. But again, if we don't, if we're not taught that and we're intentionally not taught that, mm-hmm. um, one of the biggest learnings in college for me was having relationships with people who came from wealth mm-hmm. and watching how they navigated the world in a very different way than I did. That didn't necessarily, it's just now starting to actually turn into actual learnings I can do things with. I didn't know what I was witnessing. I didn't know what I was watching. I just, uh, you know, I don't know, made up all kinds of stories about why they were engaging with the world different and more importantly while the world was engaging with them differently and and so it it is now that I can look back I'm thankful for my long memory in that regard because I can now look back and go "Mm, they just navigated the world differently and the world responded to them differently and we might sometimes call it confidence or we might call it all these various things but man they understood that they always had something to leverage absolutely and I think that's a difference that that um, a lot of people who aren't taught that we don't navigate the world that way. Yeah. Well, what I'm loving about 2020 and 2021 was, you know, the wheels fell off, right? The matrix broke down and we really got to see who were valuable, essential, who were non-valuable, who were non-essential. And I think it also allowed people to really think about their environment, where they were and whether it's what they want. I think one of the beauties of financial peace, financial freedom, financial security, is that when you're not chasing tomorrow's meal, when you're not chasing next month's rent today, you can actually think. You can actually think about what I want, why do I want what I want? Do I actually care enough about that thing to work for it? and redefine what wealth, what happiness, what joy, what abundance like looks like for you. And so, and that's what 2020, 21, 21 did for me. And I will say also did for my wife is like, we decided that we wanted to be more free. We wanted to be able to be around people who made us feel good, who poured into us, which meant that probably not this corporate job we're in. So we'll launch businesses, leverage our talents, and then we can choose the clients we want to work with and then choose the partners that we want to work with. And so we've built a freedom that we can be where we want to be, work with the people we want to work with for the people we want to work for. And like, it's just consecutive good days. There, there are no dreadful meetings. There are no, you know, I just really don't want to talk to this person because they make me feel bad. They just are clients. Hey, it's not a good fit because I decided. So good luck finding another advisor. Listen, and I, I just want people to hear what you just said 
And anytime they hear people just don't want to work, I want them to think about what you just said, because, because, <laughs> you know, the system is spinning a narrative mm-hmm. and there, we said, you said, good. I'm going to say effective. They're, they're very effective. Marketing is effective. And when I tell you that we are living the, the results of well-spun narrative, they are masterful at spinning a story. And I keep hearing people just don't want to work. And I go, is, is that it? Mm-hmm. My, one of my default questions that I encourage everyone to ask, what else could be true? Maybe you're right. You might be 100% right, but what else could be true? When we open ourselves, and I, I, I encourage people to come up with three, what else could be true? What are three options to why what you're seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, like what are three options? Because then you don't get stuck in the only, because they're going to give you a couple of narratives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In the first one, for sure. What else could be true? When we learn to challenge narrative, particularly the ones we've absorbed and now call our own, that's a level of freedom too, that they don't want you to have. As long as we operate on the narrative that they give us, then 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 like going through the the, the book, I, I, I like, um, what's it called? Create your own adventure stories, mm-hmm. right? Choose your own adventure. Yeah. yeah choose, thank you. Choose your own adventure. You know, it's like, Hey, I don't just have to read this book and do what they wrote me to do. There is another option. Now, granted they wrote the whole book, but it's, we can create our own adventure. And I, and narrative is a huge part of that. And if people are getting to a point where they can evaluate because the system, the system got hijacked for a minute there. The the system did not account for this unveiling and, you know, being able to see behind the curtain a little bit, people got a little glimpse and they like, wait a minute, the wizard don't seem that scary yet no more. (laughs) So now they're having different conversations. They're trying to make different decisions, but the wizard then closed the curtain again and say, well, people just don't want to work. And the same people they saying don't want to work were the ones forced to go out there and work in the midst of a global pandemic, many of whom died. They don't want to work. Yeah. While you sat behind your Zoom screen because you could do it virtually. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all about challenging narrative. So anyway, this is so good. Let's transition for a second into the self-care portion. I want to take this in two parts. In one way, financial advising. Um, how can that be a form of self-care for someone participating in that relationship? And then secondly, how do you take care of yourself as you help people navigate, you know, this world? What do you do to pour back into yourself? Yeah. You know, there's a few ways that financial planning can be self-care. One, we spend time budgeting self-care. Um, and once a week, here's the conversation. We're going down through the budget sheet. We go line item by line item. My partner and brother Fred is incredible at line item by line item. And we get to massages and they say, oh, yeah, I don't get massages, but I wish I could. Right. And then we usually say, well, you could, but let's see. And we go down through the budget. And so then we go back and say, if you could get a massage. How often would you like one? Um, what do you think that would cost? And then we put the number in and we say, hey, you can afford that, right? Get a massage once a week. Get a membership pack for 10 per month. And then we're going to check back next month to see, are you using them, right? So 
Um, so there's the there's the massage that we could budget into there. Um, there's also we have a choose your own adventure meeting. And so tell us what you want to learn about because you had mentioned choose your own adventure. But the biggest one that we talk about. Um, so before we make a single financial recommendation, we do a money scripts meeting. And it's an assessment that you take that helps you to uncover what are the scripts about money that you live, that you believe, that you exhibit. And it goes through and it will tell you, are we money avoidance, money worship? Um, are we money vigilant? Uh, what are the things that we subscribe to? And then we have a conversation about why, where they come from. Do you wanna to continue to hold these beliefs into the future? And so I watch people decide that they no longer care about some things that they were told to care about. And so then we start to build a life financially and figure out how to fund a life that they actually like. And that is a level of self-care that I don't really know how to describe how valuable it is. Um, because if you decide, you know, uh, we had one client who came in, wanted to buy a house. How do I buy a house? How do I buy a house? Why do you want a house? Well, they told me I should buy a house. I make enough money that I can afford a house. Well, but you just said that you wanted to go to Portland for three weeks and you wanted to go to LA for two weeks and that you wanted to go overseas three times. So does it really make sense to buy a house if you don't know you're going to be there? And she's like, no. So we then budgeted the house budget into a travel budget, into a remote working budget. And she's overseas. And the amount of joy and self-care and how do you fund it and how do we make enough? How much money is enough? Right. All of those questions, I think financial planning should help you to realize. And it's a it's a, a crazy high level of self-care. Well, I will say that helping people unburden themselves from the inheritances that they've been given that do not value them. Yes. That is a level of self-care that is indescribable. So I know why you don't have the words. And I love that you do that for people because narrative, we are carrying Matters. so many beliefs that we don't even believe it. We were just told we were supposed to believe it. And that's very powerful stuff. So how do you take care of yourself? Yeah, I love music. I listen to music all throughout my day. I collect vinyls, jazz music from my grandfather, soul music from my parents, rap, hip hop from our generation. Like I just love music at a high level. I think it's magic. Um, so I can, I love the fact that I can really control my mood by what I play. And I take that pretty seriously. Um, so I love it. Right. Yeah, that's, that's we, we're talking thing. to the financial dude and what he's telling us is the level of self-care he does isn't even about going out and spending money. It's about what comes into him through the form of music, which I think is extremely powerful. Yeah. Because this whole season, it's about talking to people about their labors of love, but saying, what do you do to care for yourself and how much we can learn from people who are doing the thing out there and how they nurture themselves. And music is extremely powerful. And so yeah. I, I thank you for that offering. We could talk, I could, we could do this forever you know, and just take a break and come back to it. Um, but I love, thank you so much for joining us, the contributions you've given me and my listeners. Um, I really appreciate it. You're so dope. I appreciate you. Thank you for the invite. This was wonderful. You as thank, thank you for accepting. 
I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and of course, you, my listeners, I never take it for granted. If you have suggestions for content or guests, visit the website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. Don't forget we're on all the major social media outlets. We are actually off. We on TikTok. I got a young assistant. I didn't do this. She did. But we're on TikTok now. So check out our Wellness Wednesday TikToks. (laughs) Don't forget we got our YouTube channel where all our Therapy Thursday videos are housed. And if you have not yet, go ahead and share, rate, and leave a review for the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.